Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello and welcome to the Global Council podcast. I'm John Garvey, Practice Lead for International Policy. I'm delighted to be joined today by Stephen Adams, our Senior Director, Miranda Lutz, our Senior Associate from the DC office, and Jens Prethus, Senior Associate from our Global Macro Practice in London. Today, we're going to be talking about development finance and in particular infrastructure spending. A few years ago, that might have sounded like something of a niche topic. But the point of our discussion today is really to explore how and why it's become something of a geopolitical fault line. Politicians have always liked to announce that they're building things. The cynics might say that's because timelines for major projects are often longer than electoral cycles or even political lifetimes. And many past promises in this area have melted into thin air. But last year, we saw a particularly notable explosion of announcements. At the G7 in June, President Biden pushed his colleagues to sign up to a pledge to build back better and address a so-called $40 trillion infrastructure gap in the developing world. Then at COP26, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced an £8 billion uh, clean green initiative, public and private investment. And we also saw, of course, at the same time, the announcement of uh, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which is supposedly going to deliver $100 trillion in net zero transition financing by 2050. And to round off the year, the European Commission in December announced 300 billion euros for global infrastructure investment uh, to be directed towards the developing world by 2027. Now, we'll talk about those numbers in a bit more detail as we go on. But one final point before I open this up to our panelists. In all cases, Western powers have emphasized that this spending will be delivered on values-based criteria. Um, In other words, they will be directed towards democratic countries, delivered to high social and environmental standards. And all of that is, of course, code for setting up alternatives to Chinese investment and influence, not just in Asia and the developing world, but also in middle-income countries from the Balkans to Latin America. So, Stephen, if we can start with you, could you unpack the geopolitics of this for us? Why do you think all of these initiatives emerged over the course of last year? And perhaps more importantly, are they a flash in the pan or something you'd expect to see the international system push forward with this year? Uh, Well, thanks, John. I mean, I I think we need to distinguish between, of course, these initiatives and these themes. Um, I mean, these, these themes, the question of the infrastructure gap in the developing and the emerging world is hardly new. I mean, for as long as I've uh, worked in international political economy, we've been talking about an infrastructure infrastructure gap in the developing world. So that in itself is not new. Of course, the question of where exactly the gap is has evolved over time, particularly with the recognition of the importance of decarbonisation, where alongside sort of the conventional questions of things like urban infrastructure and, um, and utilities infrastructure, the question of um, sort of the transformational spending on heavily carbon intensive infrastructure has uh, has come to the the forefront um, but but these initiatives are clearly of their time and in that respect they reflect uh, an emerging and evolving tension of course as you've already flagged in your intro there between um, the the sort of the North Atlantic world and broadly China um, they reflect the um, 
the anxieties that have been developing in the North Atlantic world for 15 years now, as China has become an increasingly large exporter of capital and a sovereign exporter of capital, and particularly a sovereign exporter of capital into jurisdictions like Africa and initially, and the the states that make up the Belt and Road Initiative more recently. And um, they also reflect the uh, emerging and now very concrete recognition as part of the climate change, the multilateral climate change process, that there is essentially going to have to be a redistributive element to any international settlement on climate change. And I think obviously with last year being COP26, um, that question of essentially where the money was coming from for funding decarbonization in the emerging and the developing world has helped underpin the perceived need for these kinds of high-profile initiatives. So I think when you put together the, the 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 kind of North Atlantic anxiety over Chinese influence with the more general um, kind of concern in IFIs now over decades about the the infrastructure gap in the developing and the emerging world, plus COP26 and the general perception that a key pillar of any successful multilateral climate change framework is going to be uh, a a money uh, you know, a, a a pool of money available for infrastructure investment in the emerging and the developing world. We can see why these long-standing themes have come together in these particular initiatives over the last twelve months. And actually, maybe I can ask you a question there, which is, I mean, there's obviously a question about just how credible some of these big numbers are. So maybe you can give us a take on just how credible these commitments really are. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah, sure. Um, I'd, I'd say the first, the first and perhaps most obvious point to make here is that when you hear a lot, when you hear these new announcements with these huge figures, the the actual proportion of new money tends to be relatively low, and you often have to to break the overall sum down quite a lot to to find what is genuinely new. Um, it's also worth saying that. The model for infrastructure finance tends to be that some public money, whether that is debt or equity or guarantees, is used to catalyze um, private finance and to persuade private sector investors and also multilateral development banks to take on a higher degree of risk. And there's no there's no single model or ratio for that. When we've been talking to businesses involved in development projects, you often hear about the risk that governments can crowd out private investment essentially by taking the most uh, risk-free uh, chunks of a portfolio. So a lot of the discussion that the UK was involved in leading last year as G7 presidency was about how... Uh, how um, Western governments could work together to crowd in private finance. One of the big ideas on the table that I think we're going to see more of this year on that is uh, that of creating country platforms where G7 countries essentially work together to help shape a recipient country's infrastructure needs into a some kind of investable, more investable portfolio. The jury's still out on whether these proposals will do that. And as I said in the intro, that it's partly because inevitably the time horizons on the proposals uh, tend to be so long. In terms of the actual numbers that we've seen, 
the of 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 the initiatives that we've spoken about so far, the one where there is actually a reasonable amount of detail is the EU's Global Gateway Initiative. And it's just worth breaking down some of the numbers there because it's a really good example of how uh, some of these figures do or don't add up. So the headline promise, remember, is to mobilize 300 billion euros of overall investment between 2021 and 2027. Of that, 145 billion is existing planned investment by EU countries' development finance uh, uh, initiatives or arms. 18 billion is uh, grants, mostly uh, already made grants under the EU's external assistance programs. And 135 billion is uh, investment foreseen under the European Sustainable Development Fund. 40 billion of that is direct EU money provided through a mix of the EU budget and the EIB. So really, it's only that 40 billion that you could honestly uh, badge as new money. Um, what the Commission have said uh, in response to that criticism is that the real novelty here isn't just the headline figure, it's that this initiative provides a strategic framework for uh, EU development spending. And the EU is, of course, the single biggest uh, odor spender in the world. So in their view, this is how you um, address fragmentation. You give um, more strategic heft and you work towards the strategic autonomy that the French in particular uh, have been talking about. The second more techie point is the leverage ratio there, is sort of depending on how you calculate it, between 10 and 20% uh, state-backed investment to private sector investment the leverage ratio is actually fairly low comparatively. So the really interesting thing to look out for this year is to watch how the French presidency are going to take it forward and really try and shape this into part of that strategic autonomy agenda. That's probably enough about European finance. Miranda, turning to the US, could you tell us a bit more about where Joe Biden's agenda is headed here? See, as we said, this all kicked off at the G7 with the so-called Build Back Better World initiative. We've since seen um, the Summit of Democracies as well. So how does this all fit together over there? So I think this is all positioned within President Biden's broader objective to bring the U.S. back to engagement um, at the multilateral level. And in particular, this Build Back Better World or the B3W initiative is more about putting some structure around U.S. development finance rather than putting up the the funds. You had mentioned um, the problem in identifying new monies for these types of efforts, and I think that that is something that we'll see in the U.S. Um, that will be a challenge as well. Usually, uh, U.S. Uh, foreign assistance funding has remained relatively static uh, over the past 20 years, despite who's in office. You know, President Trump notoriously tried to zero out a lot of these accounts, um, and Congress has always pushed back on that to maintain a steady level of funding. But very rarely have they actually offered new lines of funding for these types of efforts. So if you take a step back and look at, you know, where Biden hopes to push this, I think it's very um, much a, a messaging um, objective for for his administration, and it's also very tied into his Build Back Better domestically, which 
as you may have seen in the headlines, is obviously struggling a bit recently. The the Build Back Better um, legislation has been stalled in the Senate for some time now, and the uh, outcome of that is is certainly quite uncertain at the moment. And I think that looking to the the main objectives of the the Biden administration, you can see in how all of the major U.S. development finance agencies have put out um, a series of documents about how they'll be focused on you know three major themes. The the first is is climate, the second is um, equity, and then gender inclusion. And those are the the three themes that I think they'll look to build this framework around, and really to guide their investment strategy. And as you said, um, there is basically gridlock in Congress and US politics at the moment, but China is one of the few genuine or perhaps the only genuinely bipartisan issue. Now, accepting obviously that it's going to be very difficult to actually get money out of the door. Do you see other sort of strands of thinking coming through in the US about how uh, how foreign policy and development policy infrastructure spending can be corralled into something like more of a coherent uh, approach towards China. So we're seeing in some of in some of the um, in some of the product blacklist lists and in some of the in some of the wider industrial diplomacy, if you like, we're seeing something which certainly seems to approximate more to bipartisan support, but. Do you think there are other ways of generating it around these initiatives? Definitely. And I think that the Development Finance Corporation or the the DFC, which will take lead on a lot of these efforts, um, it underwent a a major rebrand and reform in in 2018. And a large reason for that, um, for the reform, was to position the agency to better counter China's investments in um, developing economies. There have been a number of legislative proposals, um, including from leaders on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, to actually tailor DFC's mandate even more strongly to be used as a foreign policy tool to to counter China. And so that could include um, expanding the ability of the DFC to invest in not just uh, developing economies, but more developed economies as well. And that's all kind of a part of, you know, broadening the U.S. Um, influenced soft power as a way to, to counter China. I think that the, the challenge will be um, is that much of the focus politically in the U.S. is from a you know national security perspective, and it's very domestically focused. And there's really only a, a small segment of lawmakers that will care about what the U.S. is doing in the um, you know world of development finance to counter China. So the the audience for these types of efforts is just a little bit more narrow. But it is an important part of the broader toolbox that Biden will use. I think that particularly in technology, um, you'll see a lot of focus that's been discussed a lot by the USAID administrator, Samantha Power. And and so I think that that will be something she'll look out to to bring forward over the next year. And we will turn to uh, we will turn to a Chinese uh, perspective itself in a second. But before we do that, it, it might be worth just 
sort of briefly characterizing what the sort of specter of Chinese influence that um, the West is, if you like, reacting against looks like. I mean, the phrase that you most often hear is um, when trying to characterize what China has been doing over the last 10 years is debt trap diplomacy. Um, I've heard that phrase, I think, used particularly uh, around US politics, but would you like to say anything on that just in terms of the way in which Chinese investment influence is perceived in the US? It's, I mean, obviously, it's perceived negatively. Um, yeah. And the the goal of Biden's initiative is, is to counter that um, negative influence. But it is extremely hard to do so. Um, and the way in which the US um, doles out its assistance, you know, through grants, investment, private sector, et cetera, has also, um, you know, is, is flawed. Um, but that is the, the a main motivating factor for Biden is to to counter that um, is to to counter that perception. But just reforming these way these um, funding streams is extremely difficult. It's politically challenging. And given the fact that none of the major development agencies have confirmed um, heads, so the, the DFC, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, the USTDA, none of them have um, have the Biden's appointees set in place. That's going to kind of slow back these efforts. And then um, Samantha Power at USAID has often talked about reforming procurement and the way that U.S. does gives out assistance. But again, it's it's politically challenging. And for someone like Power who's seeking higher office, um, she's unlikely to want to enter that quagmire. The procurement uh, point is really interesting and something we perhaps might return to later as part of standards, because it, it, is, it is one of the things that businesses have told us is actually uh, one of the biggest barriers to to investment in uh, developing country infrastructure projects that the procurement frameworks just uh, don't stand up and that causes all sorts of problems, including for insurance and so on. But let's turn now to China. So Jens, you've been following um, the development of the Belt and Road Initiative for some time. Um, It's probably worth starting by saying that we've talked about scale I don't think there's ever been an official number put on the Belt and Road Initiative, but most analysts estimate that uh, the overall portfolio is around one trillion US dollars. It's been going for, I think, over 10 years now. And over that time, the model has changed. One of the most interesting things I've heard said about um, these Western initiatives that we're talking about is actually that they're reacting against a model of Chinese investment that is no longer uh, that is no longer current. That the Chinese have themselves shifted. So, do you think that do you think that is true? Where where does China stand on this? How has it reacted to the proposals that have come out of the West? Um, thank you. Thank you, John. Um, so I think the there's definitely been an, uh, a change in uh, in language on the um, on the on the part of Beijing uh, as a reaction to all of these new initiatives coming out from from the US, the EU, um, and and the UK too. Um, so if you look at what happened during the the third BRI symposium, which took place at the end of November in in, in 2021, 
uh, Xi Jinping, President Xi Jinping, laid down this new vision, basically, for, uh, for the BRI. And he then emphasized things like quality development, real achievements, pointing to soft connectivity and promoting rules and standards, and basically described the initiative as a, as a public good and a platform for international cooperation. So not only does this mirror language coming out of the US and, uh, and the UK, but it also points to uh, the BRI's perhaps renewed focus. Uh, he also pointed a lot to credibility as being much more important now for, for the Chinese government through the BRI, by stressing the need to educate uh, Chinese citizens and businesses about foreign laws. So businesses that are involved in Belt and Road Initiative projects basically with the aim of hindering corruption and, and trying to protect China's reputation. So all of these um, soft power issues have become much more important now. Um, the, overall, um, um, the overall initiative now is much more about um, using the structure that has been built over the last 10 years or so of the BRI and trying to make the most of it. Um, and as a second point to, um, that links, to, uh, links well back to, to the reaction to these new Western initiatives is um, what happened during the UN General Assembly in September last year when uh, President Xi Jinping launched what he called the Global Development Initiative. That didn't actually get too much um, uh, publicity at the time, um, um, but it's now something that uh, Chinese officials talk about almost interchangeably together when they discuss BRI issues with, um, with other governments. And it's basically meant to support equal development worldwide. So it's, again, a great example of how Chinese language on um, international development now is very much similar um, to what is coming out of the um, um, out of the, the EU uh, or the US. It, it's it's fascinating. I think that the, the language is um, so mirrored, as you say. Could you maybe just tell us a bit more about the degree to which uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, as it is now? is centrally directed and what's really the balance between um sort of ccp sort of mandated investment if you like and state-backed enterprises making their own choices and then private companies uh following through on um opportunities that are being created through it have we have we seen any sort of shift i suppose in the overall balance between very central state directed and uh sort of long tail if you like yeah yeah definitely um, and it, it kind of comes back to the, the to the first question in terms of how if the west is reacting to a model that is already redundant um, and i think that's an interesting question because if you um uh, the way i like to think about the bri and its involvement um or um is how uh, instead of looking at bri development lending as being some devious political ploy run by the, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, I would argue that the real story is more about how China has miscalculated the risks of such development lending, basically in the same way as lots of other countries, including many European ones, have miscalculated such risks um, in the past. Uh, and you can argue that the, uh, the, the model actually started changing several years ago. Uh, if you want to point to, to, to one specific event, you can, we can perhaps go to Latin America and Venezuela in 2015, when the Chinese government promised billions of dollars uh, in economic support uh, and lending to, to the government uh, to, to support uh, the, the Venezuelan economy. 
uh, that did not go too well. Um, a lot of that, most of that money has never been returned, never will be returned. And it kind of left a bitter taste um, for the, um, uh, the Chinese government. And since then, lending from China's big policy development banks have declined pretty sharply. Um, the focus now is, as you rightly say, uh, or point to, um, is much more on investing in, uh, directly investing in strategic sectors um, such as renewable energy. And this is now much more being done by uh, the private commercial banks who have a commercial focus. They look at profit maximization rather than simply following um, diplomatic guidelines um, from Beijing. So that, is, that has been a big change um, in terms of the, the focus uh, of the BRI and the actors that are actually involved and what that means for, um, for, um, for the, the whole initiative, really. Um, so if you look at uh, data from 2020, um, what really held up Chinese overseas direct investment was M&A activity on the part of private enterprises, which almost doubled from the year before. And one final question, Jens. Um, again, quite a lot of uh, the negative caricatures uh, about Chinese investment have focused on um, low quality or low standards, if you like. Not not just um, not just in terms of labor or environmental standards, but actually sort of low quality outcomes of the infrastructure projects involved. That's been the stereotype. When I've looked for sort of material evidence to substantiate that, it's actually reasonably hard to come by. And interestingly, some of the surveys that have been done um, in Africa, particularly of attitudes towards Chinese or European or US investment have sort of demonstrated that actually Chinese investment is still often the preferred option. Do you have a perspective on that? Just how how the extent to which a significant number of uh, flagship projects have gone off the rails and sort of recipient countries' attitudes towards Chinese investment at the moment? So, I mean, there's um, obviously a number of examples or at least a few examples where you can point to that the project didn't go as planned. Um, but I'm, I'm not so sure, as, as you point to, that that's because of uh, poor quality of the actual project. That's more to do with political conditions on the ground. So in, in, in Pakistan now, for instance, uh, China has been having some troubles with some of its um, um, biggest development projects there. But that really hasn't had anything to do with the, uh, the quality of the project. And I think that uh, is somewhat similar, perhaps, to the whole story uh, about uh, debt trap diplomacy, which uh, also, if you actually look at the the data, isn't isn't true. Uh, there is one example that's being used pretty much all the time, and that's the uh, port project in Sri Lanka. But in reality, that was um, obviously the the project failed, but that was more on the on the part of um, perhaps somewhat greedy local politicians who wanted a big project that was political important and kind of a bit of a, a glory project, if you will. Um, so I think the um, the cases where there are troubles with this project, it's it's not necessarily about the, the quality, but about perhaps management of it in, in combination uh, between Chinese participants and, and, and local ones. Stephen, if if you if you turn that round and think about it from the Western perspective, both the US and actually really particularly the EU have talked about this question of standards a lot um, and talked about how 
investment from the West could drive, if you like, a, a race to the top in terms of environmental standards, labor standards, uh, actual material standards um, in terms of the projects as well. Do you think that is credible or how do you see that evolving? Yeah, I, th- I think we, we need to be slightly careful with this language for a couple of reasons. I mean, the first is there's quite a lot of empirical evidence that there's a link between institutional quality and FDI, and particular kind of clustering of quality institutions like the rule of law uh, and uh, attractiveness to inward investment. But of course, the dynamic that's at play there is the um, is the attractiveness of the destination jurisdiction to the incoming capital. Uh, what, what this language tries to do is to flip that around and say that you can drive a race to the top essentially with your lending standards, right? And the problem with that, of course, is that that's an argument that works if you have a relative monoculture in terms of the the the, the origin of financing. And of course, for a big part of the period from, you know, uh, of say the 80s and 90s, um, often you were talking about the standards that were being imposed by the IFIs, the World Bank, and the IMF, and the kind of contingent conditions that they would attach to lending um, could, at a pinch, be described as kind of driving a culture of, um, uh, of, of, of good policy and fiscal rectitude. The trouble is, of course, that logic only applies if you don't have another actor in the system that isn't applying the same contingent conditions to capital. And that's, of course, always been the issue with China and China's expansion as an exporter of capital. And I think while I, I mean, I, I think Jens is obviously completely right that it's possible, of, possible to mischaracterize some of the contingent conditions attached to things like BRI lending. It is, of course, the case that that doesn't necessarily mean that Chinese lenders will be doing anything other than, for example, looking for things like profit maximization, exactly as Jens said. So I think the, the question of um, whether you're going to be able to use lending standards as part of a race to the top really does depend in many respects on the way the other lenders in the system, and China in particular, choose to um, choose to behave. And I, for that reason, I think you know we just need to recognize that a big part of this talk about a race to the top is ultimately about reassuring Western taxpayers that this money won't come with no strings attached and that it will, in fact, there will be contingent conditions for what, at least on their face, are, of course, very large uh, transfers at a time when many North Atlantic populations might be wondering why exactly large volumes of money are being sent abroad. Very interesting. I think I think one of one of the uh, one of the things that this conversation has brought out is just how high level a lot of um, the ideas, certainly the Western ideas around these initiatives, still are. Um, and I know that I know that there is still a lot of work going on in London and Brussels, and I'm sure in Washington as well, to to try and work with business to uh, think through what the specific barriers to private investment are. Um, And that's a conversation um, we have and we will continue to be involved in. Um, Very happy to discuss with any of our clients. Um, I think we are out of time, unfortunately, but we will be exploring many of these themes in much more detail with an excellent range of external panelists on the 3rd of February at our Politics of Decoupling event, which will be a digital conference 
all of the details on how to sign up for that are on our website. So thank you very much to Stephen, Miranda and Jens for a fascinating discussion today. And as always, if you or your business or investments are exposed to any of the issues that we've discussed, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Goodbye and thank you for listening. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. Thank you.